If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Hi, this is Hal Blaine, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Or at least you should be. Pantheon Podcasts presents from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to the devil's music, a pantheon podcast where rock and roll meets the occult. For those of you that don't know me, I do a lot of stuff. I'm a dancer, actor, tarot reader, and a best-selling author with eight books out. I got one on the way too. Look for my new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch, on Punk Hostage Press. You might have seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. In fact, look for me in the new Go-Go stock. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, please go to PleasantGaiman.com or check out my Instagram, Princess of Hollywood. All one word, baby. I post there a lot. I'm really happy to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Everyone at Pantheon tells stories about the music we love so much. There's like 50 podcasts. Find them all on Pantheon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.com, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend. And I'll put a spell on you, baby. Johnny's got a lot of near size in. Shirley's got a lot of her lips. Jake's got a monkey shine on his head. And Deborah Ann's got a tiger in her hips. And turn, they can move and burn, they can throw themselves against the wall. But they creep for what they need, and they explode to the car, and then they move. Move! Hey, this is Pleasant Amen, and you're listening to my podcast, The Devil's Music. Today, my guest is Terry Graham, punk rock icon, drummer for the seminal LA punk bands, The Bags and The Gun Club, author of the book, Punk Like Me, and um, all around fantastic 
guy, super creative. We've known each other for like cough, cough, 45 years or so. <laughs> Hi, Hello. Terry. How are you doing? Hello, Pleasant. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. If you're good, I'm good. So we're still here. Yeah. I know we're still here, huh? Um, the other day, me and you were talking about um, how there's there's been so many people from the early LA punk scene that are not with us anymore. And sometimes yeah. I wonder how any of us like even survived because those days were so wild. Uh, um, yeah, uh, it's it's it is a strange thing, and I and I've thought about it, you know, just down through the years when you kind of think about other groups or or maybe things that happened before us and and uh and you think those same thing you know it's like well why why do some people just keep going and going and going and and so many others don't uh, i you know who knows i i can't put my finger on it but um i just think we're lucky the genes are good i guess and um uh somehow you know, it certainly wasn't a healthy lifestyle for a while <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm saying the genes have to be good because it had nothing to do with uh, going to the gym and eating properly and things like that. <laughs> Even though we may have done that over the years at times, you know, I, I've tried, but um, I don't know. I'm just glad that, uh, that we're here to talk about it. So, um, the, you know, it's weird because like those days were so fucking amazing. It's really hard to convey what it was really like to people um, nowadays, what it was yeah. like back then, because we it was a world with absolutely no social media, no email, not even, um, you know, landline phones only, not even call waiting or answering machines right. at a lot of points of it, um, mostly because like call waiting wasn't wasn't around in the early days of punk and then answering machines were expensive and it was <laughs> yeah yeah no, it's, it's, yeah it's it's kind of uh it's incredible because the telephone to me back then meant the nearest telephone booth uh or the nearest 7-eleven or something like that you know and uh uh, I, I, I keep thinking about that one, um, I mean, I'm kind of jumping in here, but uh, that one incident at um, the plunger pit where um, uh, we had uh, the singer for the Wildcats, I can't remember his name. Um, Gerard. Yeah, Gerard. Was, okay. Yeah. When uh, he uh, was um, came in and there were a group of us there, uh, but he was cl clearly had... Uh, had some serious life-threatening issues and, and I think was passing away in front of us. And uh, KK, of course, drummer for the Screamers, ran out the door to the nearest phone booth, uh, called Gerard's dad, and, and then uh, uh, immediately he came over. But, you know, that was truly a kind of a life or death hanging by every moment situation once we realized, uh-oh, this is like serious here and uh but yet in spite of not having you know 18 cell phones right in our pockets um kk thankfully went made the call the guy showed up went to the hospital saved the day so you know the kk rescued me one time too <clears throat> i thought okay so first of all let me, let me just explain to people that are listening the plunger pit was the home of the plungers which was helen killer trudy our 
Bullies and Mary Rat, and the Plunger Pit was in the exact same building as John Doe and Exine's um, adult books uh, apartment. It was it was at La Jolla and Santa Monica, right across the street yeah. from one of the best clubs in town called the Starwood. And that building was a hotbed of punk rock activity, obviously, um, you know, just immortalized in adult books by X. But, um, and, and the Wildcats were a very, um, they, were, they were like a great and really popular band on the LA punk scene in the early days, even though a lot of people right now probably don't really know who they are. Gerard is still active on social media, but, um, so KK saved me too. KK and Fast Freddy, who was a DJ and um, had the the back doorman fanzine. I was at a party at the Germs House, um, their apartment on Holloway, which you you were probably at. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was it was raining, and um, the Screamers had brought over a bunch of Mickey's Big Mouth beer, which was a new discovery to us. We called it Old Man Beer. <laughs> um, but I was trying to go down the steps and they lived on the second floor and the steps were concrete painted over with some kind of slick paint. And I, one of my yeah. feet kind of slipped, I grabbed the railing and I flipped over and fell onto the concrete and KK and Fast Freddy immediately ran down and um, picked me up and got me into a car and brought me to the hospital. And um, they were giving me like a concussion test in the hospital. I like, um, fractured my jaw and uh you know I was wearing like total insane punk rock clothes like I, I had on some kind of a yeah. homemade t-shirt and these jeans that were all bleached out and fucked up and I had like this um belt made with a buckle of Japanese toys that I'd gotten from little Tokyo it wasn't a real belt I'd like glued it together <clears throat> so they were trying to give me a concussion test and I thought they were checking to see if I was drunk and I couldn't really talk because my jaw was so fucked up, but it kept going, I'm not drunk, I'm not drunk. But they were just trying to see if my eyes would trace their fingers. I thought it was this anxiety. Yeah. yeah, yeah, see, you know, I mean, situations that, that uh, at any time, you know, could be or are, were really serious. And yet we were able to deal with all of that. Sometimes it amazes me too when I think about, uh, well, what was different? I don't know. We did everything we wanted to do. We, we took risks, we took chances, uh, uh, and, um, somehow it worked out for us. I think, I mean, like it would work out for, for any group of people. We didn't really need, we did not need the instant connection because we had it with each other. You know, instead of a cell phone, I could go, to Disgraceland or I could go to the plunger pit or whatever. And there was everything I needed to know right there. One person had some information. This person knew about a party. That person knew who was going to play next week. There was the internet. There was everything we needed. So I don't really think it's, it was all that unusual uh, or, or somehow, you know, back in the dark ages, it wasn't that at all. We had access to everything that we needed to know uh, to get along. So, you know, sometimes I do want to toss the, the phone, but I'm like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I need it. So, but, um, I don't know, we made it all work and, uh, we didn't even think about it. We didn't worry about it because we had to be there in person and we, you just had to take risks in life, which I think is kind of missing now. 
I think it was amazing being there in person, um, just like now in the pandemic times, like it would be way more amazing to see many more people in person. <laughs> but um, yeah. so tell me, tell me how um, you joined the bags because didn't you come from Texas? You came out from Texas, right? Yeah, I came out in uh, late 76 and uh, I was living with my cousin in Van Nuys and I, I, I came out with the Ramones album. I had bought that before I left. And I, I knew that something, you know, I, I hated that record when I first heard it. And I, I went and yeah. bought it. And I just thought it was like, oh, my God, this is the worst shit ever. And I and I listened, I read a um, an article in, in um, The Village Voice. Well, I think probably their first punk article. It was in 1976. And it had Richard Hell and Tom Verlaine. And then just a short thing about stuff that was going on at CBGB's and this new, whatever this stuff is. And it mentioned the Ramones as being uh, kind of, uh, you know, part of it, but they were the first ones to play or something really super early on. And uh, so I went and bought it from these, you know, hippie dudes at the local record store. And uh, uh, I couldn't believe that they actually had the record, but, um, but then the strange thing was, that uh, I played it and 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 I hated it and and then I played it again and I kind of still hated it, but I couldn't stop playing it. And it was like it didn't take very long, literally two or three days playing it all the time before I realized, oh fuck, this is the greatest shit ever. This is it dispenses with everything that was so grotesque and overblown about 70s pop culture and so i had to overcome a lot of you know built in i love my guitar solos i want to see a nine i want to hear a nine minute song and you know it, it I, I had to overcome that but it quickly did that and then i was like okay that's it i'm sold i'm done that's it i love it whatever this is i don't know then i moved to la and i went to this i think was the first time i went to the uh, house where the Screamers lived, the Wilton yeah. Hilton. Yeah. Um, and that was really an interesting place anyway, because it kind of had some history. Um, but I remember Brian Tristan, there were so many people there, Craig Lee, and I was just kind of meeting a lot of some of them for the first time. For all you listeners. Yeah. Um, and Alice, um, I, I knew Nikki, Nikki and Beat and I, who's a drummer for the weirdos at the time. And before that Venus and the razor blades and things like that. But he and I hung out because we were drummers and we would go to professional drum shop on vine and go to their cardboard boxes where all the junk is and try to fashion these Frankenstein drum sets, you know, out of, out of these bins and these parts and stuff. And uh, so then finally he introduced me to Alice and, um, and Nikki of course was like, well, Hey, you know, so, um, I, I'm playing their songs right now, but they need a drummer. And and Alice, she's like, have you ever played drums? And I said, actually, yes, I have a long time ago in grade school. I said, but I know how to play, uh, I think. And she said, well, why don't you come to rehearsal? Why don't you join the bags? Why don't you come to rehearsal? Just join the bags. And um, so, of course, I was, you know, extremely nervous. And uh, I, I went there and it just it just went really well it was like wow like riding a bike you just get back on the bike there it is and uh so just like that um i was in the band i the germ strummer don bowles 
he was, they had talked to him, I think, or she might have mentioned, they had just moved out from Phoenix. But, uh, but. I was the first person I met in LA. Who was? I was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. So, I mean, were you there? I mean, obviously you were at that, at that house all the time. At uh, this or, um, house? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was probably there, but I met Don um, on the street, actually. Oh, oh my <laughs> God. He was sleeping in his car. I mean, this was probably before that, that party and he gave me, um, we were talking, I introduced myself to him because he looked like a punk. I mean, this was the thing in those days for, for all the people listening, like you could tell who someone was by the way they dress. Now there's no idea of like, I just started talking to him because nowadays you'd never go up to a, a strange guy in a car and just start yeah, talking. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, because you have no reason to. You know, why would you? I mean, there, there, you might have a reason, but back then uh, everything was so, everybody looked the same. I mean, just finding a pair of jeans that were straight-legged and not flared. Oh, yeah. That, where would you find that, you know? So... Anyway, yeah, I mean, I was just instantly there. And then Don, yeah, Don, he joined the Germs, obviously, which was, I thought, a great fit. I thought he really did a great job with him. Um, but uh, but that's how, uh, after one rehearsal, we were just like, okay, yeah, this works, with Nikki there to show me stuff. So um, that, That's so cool. I, mean, I know stuff happened so instantaneously in those days. Um, Let's take a little break right now to listen to some good old punk rock and we will be right back. Okay, so let's um, let let's let's pick things up here, Terry. Like, um, huh? what was your favorite um, gig with the bags, or or what was your favorite thing about the mask? Because we were always at the mask so much. This was like LA's yeah. first underground punk club that wasn't the Whiskey or the Starwood. It was in the basement under the Pussycat Theater in Hollywood uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, run by Brendan Mullen, who um, you know later went on to book a bunch of clubs and become an author, RIP Brandon. Um, But the mask was magical. It was a shithole, but to anybody that was there, it was like, it was like eyes. It was, it was, I loved it so much. What, how did you like it? I'm sure you liked it too. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, the odd thing, I don't know how I met Michelle Meyer, who was booking bands at the Whiskey early on, you know, within a few months after this got rolling. And one time she she's like, so where do you live? And I'm like, well, I, I'm not sure <laughs> in my bolster. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, why don't you get an apartment with me 
and we don't need anything in it. And because um, uh, I can, and we'll do it right here below the whiskey over there in West Hollywood. And, uh, you know, it was very expensive over there. Obviously, it, it always has been. And I'm like, God, I don't know if I can. Uh, she's like, don't worry about it. I'll get the apartment, come in. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out. I mean, of all people, Michelle Meyer. I was so, just going to say, I can't yeah. believe you lived with Michelle Meyer. I never knew that. But Michelle Meyer was like super instrumental in my career. For you guys who don't know who Michelle Meyer is, because she's one of the unsung heroes of L.A. rock and roll and punk rocks like, since the like late 60s. Um, she was one of Pamela DeBar's best friends. She booked the whiskey. She hired me to be ticket taker at the whiskey when I was 16. She yeah. let me put in shows there wow. with my lobotomy. She knew everybody in town, everybody. And then also everybody that was coming from out of town. So, I mean, if we made a biopic about her, nobody would believe her life. She was she was absolutely an incredible was, person. But I can't fucking believe I never knew you lived with her. <laughs> one month. One month in that apartment, and we would go to Duke's coffee shop at the Tropicana Hotel, and we'd have breakfast in the morning. <laughs> and, of course, people would come in there, you know, like Hal Linden of uh, um, Barney Miller, you know, these TV people, all, all these. And Michelle knew them. Michelle knew them. I mean, she was just – she was big. She was loud. She was just – she was incredible. She was like such a force, you know, and, and she – she really understood where we were coming from. You know, she wasn't afraid of us. She didn't think that we were, uh, she might've thought we looked kind of like, you know, freaks of some sort, but she didn't care. She cared about the business. She cared about bands. She cared about making all this stuff happen. And uh, so it was, I mean, it was platonic, but it was yeah. like, it was such an odd thing. You know, when I think about it now, especially we had this empty apartment, but it was close to everything. And, uh, so, uh, we were, um, you know, just hanging out there. And, uh, that's of course one way. I mean, obviously I could get on the guest list, uh, any night I wanted. Sorry about that. Um, was that? that was my phone. It's the uh, Russian national anthem. And I, <laughs> I put that on there as a ringtone because Russia is uh, going to do a, a, a translation of my book, but we'll get to that. Um, so the mask. So what happened was, so Michelle said, okay, so I heard about this place, Hollywood Boulevard. It's in a basement. I'm going to go check the fuck out. What is, I don't know what it is. I'm going to go like that. So she said, but first we have to go pick up Ken Fowley and he's at his, he lives in East Hollywood. So we got to go pick up, you know, the, king pig dog of hollywood or whatever she called it yeah. michelle michelle was like that she was like a combination of uh, of rodney bingenheimer and kim fowley and they all spoke the same language they all had yeah. their own slang right they, i know godhead, godhead. godhead. Yeah, I, everything I, was godhead like the germs are godhead godhead yes or Ben Halen is godhead right oh uh, right and and uh, you know and i kind of feel like i just fell off a turnip truck and i'm just sort of going along like, well, wherever it takes me, I don't know. But I had a car. Michelle did not. So we go over and I had a Volkswagen, 1967 Volkswagen Fastback. It's not a big car. Kim Fowley is a tall, thin guy. And when he got in the car, the first thing he started doing was bitching and complaining about how tiny the car was and how this was so beneath him to be in a car like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm trusting him because he was tall. Oh, <laughs> he, he was just like, yeah, 
what is this you horror show? Club and the only person you'd see was Kim Fowley because the rest of the people were like three feet under his head. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm just trying to get us to the club. That's all. I'm just Michelle's friend. So, <laughs> so we drive to the Sally, uh, the Pussycat Theater there on Hollywood Boulevard. And then above it was the, uh, the building with like the first Screen Actors Guild, uh, first Writers Guild offices, Hollywood Western Building, I think it was called. And it had these amazing uh, lithographs or whatever they were uh, in the, in the uh, lobby, this Art Deco lobby, of course, until those lithographs were cut out by some people that we know and taken to the uh, plunger bin. But um, so we go to the alley, there's a door, you know, unmarked, nothing, go downstairs, meet Brendan. And he then explains, well, it's kind of a rehearsal hall. Uh, and, uh, but we might be doing live shows someday. I don't, you know, Brendan was just, he was just this very soft-spoken Scottish guy, not really punk, not, just kind of just this guy who uh, was accommodating and uh, uh, really driven uh, to, to, create a space for musicians to be able to practice and play and and uh you know and just have something unfortunately for brendan of course was he had one entrance and exit of course the same thing in uh into the basement but according to la fire code you had to have two and the only other place that it could have been done was at the far end of the room which was directly underneath hollywood boulevard and nobody was going to be able to create an exit from a basement onto hollywood boulevard so his place was doomed from the start and uh you know but we met him it was really interesting and and i i just like here's our home this is it this is our home away from home brendan sorry you're 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 our father. You're our punk father here. Uh, keep this thing open because, you know, this is it. You're going to be seeing a lot of us. Um, so that that all took place. And then my first show with the bags was the whiskey of all places, which for me was terrifying because it's the whiskey and there was so much history. So I drank this big milkshake before the show thinking, oh, that'll calm me down. The first thing I did almost was throw the thing up outside the whiskey. So there's this, there was this huge pink splat on the sidewalk and I'm like, ah, okay, I feel better. Now I can go play. And um, uh, that show for me was, uh, was, will always be memorable. And um, the one that we did at an airline school at LAX. What the fuck? It was, there was an atrium in the middle of this building, pretty, pretty big. And, you know, on all four sides were like these dorms for these students from the Middle East and India and just all over. And we set up in the middle of this atrium and played in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> we're all so busy laughing. How the fuck did that gig come to be? That's something Craig did. Craig, 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 Craig would get these weird things. You know, his mother, of course, was in Plan Nine from Outer Space, and uh, yeah, and uh, so we don't know how he did it, but he was always coming up with something. And he was like, "Oh, it's a hundred bucks. Who cares? It's a hundred bucks." You know, which at the time was good. That was a lot um, of money. Yeah, we played it in front of no one, and a, a couple of students, uh, uh, like up on the third floor or something, and they would stare down at us and kind of go, "What the fuck just happened? What, why is this happening right now? We don't get it." Um, but um, 
anyway, that show, you know, everything that we did with the bags is kind of memorable because there weren't a whole lot of shows. We opened for Iggy Pop in Seattle. That was really fun. Um, and uh, that was our only tour that we ever went on, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and then back to L.A. <coughs> but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I loved being in the bags. And, and uh, you know, we were fairly – we really thought <coughs> – we were going to get signed to some sort of record contract. Boy, that was stupid. But at the time, I don't know. You just think those things, you know, you think it's possible. Well, I think LA was like behind New York and London and so, like LA still had like the Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles kind of. Yes. Yeah. And all the business, everybody in the business, th that's where their heads were at too. You know, it's not like New York where they were kind of sneaking into clubs and looking at stuff and checking it out. Obviously, it happened in London, but yeah. in L.A., even with the industry right behind us or in our backyard, you know, they were just they were completely disconnected from what we were doing. I mean, the fucking knack, you know, playing at the Starwood, um, selling it out in like a year into the whole punk thing with it, which was just exploding. It's like they were clueless. It's like, no, no, no. This is what we want. This is this is radio shit. You know, this is this is this is the stuff that'll sell uh, what you guys are doing. I don't know. That'll just blow away and and you'll disappear. It's like they just they, they were just clueless. Yeah, they were clueless. They were a bunch of old men and not just because we were young. I mean, they were idiots. Um, oh, they were idiots. Yeah. Complete idiots. Let's 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 switch gears and talk about um, the Canterbury where I never lived at but passed out at frequently. Um, so the Canterbury was like the iconic punk rock building. It was this, it had once been like this gorgeous, like twenties or thirties sort of silent movieville grandeur. And then it was kind of like, um, there wasn't crack in those days, but nowadays we'd call it a crack house. <laughs> yeah, God. At least at best. Yeah. The same who all lived there because I'm sure a lot of people know, but I mean, <clears throat> well. it was, was ground zero of the punk scene and it was like kitty corner across the street from the mask on Cherokee. Yeah. The thing that, uh, the plunger pit was sort of the, like the first, uh, place, you know, and I stayed there a lot. Uh, I was there all the time. Um, but that didn't last very long before landlords, neighbors, police, etc. um, uh, forced, uh, Helen and Trudy out. And so everybody was just kind of like, well, where do we go? And, you know, there were different places. Obviously, you know about that. And uh, uh, so uh, Rod, this guy named uh, Rod and shit, I can't remember. Rod Donahue. He, Rod he, Donahue, he was, thank you. He was a man about town in the L.A. punk scene. Yeah, he was just such a nice guy. And, and uh, he moved there first. He found it somehow. And uh, he invited um, uh, some people... Uh, to come over and check the place out. And um, so I remember going over there with Debbie Dub and uh, remember parking in front of the place. You know, the gate didn't work, broken glass everywhere. The little fountain, there was a fountain uh, midway from the street to the, uh, to the front door on that path that you walked, you know, that of course had just, just weeds Quite and neglect. Um, and it was fairly spooky. I mean, at least half, it's like the building was a U-shaped as you walked uh, 
down the pathway to the front door, but it, it was almost like a claw. And there were all these dark windows, you know, and it was like, oh, fuck, what is this place? It looked abandoned. <clears throat> a couple of dim lights on here and there, you know. So we're like, okay, Rod, here we go. Um, I but, saw uh, one at a party at the Canterbury once. I think this was, um, I think this was in Belinda's apartment. I can't remember because everyone's apartment had Murphy beds, those beds that yeah. pulled out of the wall. Yeah. We were all pogo dancing to the clash and all of a sudden the Murphy bed just slammed out of its little doorway and hit Rod on the head and he like passed out. Oh my God. Oh, I'm sure that place, that place must have been so haunted. There was all it kinds was of, I mean, when Debbie, the, 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 for that night, that first night, we there were LAPD um, up at the front door and uh, we were like, oh shit, uh, what now? They asked us our names, why we were visiting the apartment, all this stuff. And we were just like, hey, we just came to see a friend. We're just saying, hi, we don't know anything about anything else. So they let us in and there was a dead body uh, on the floor in the middle of that big foyer and with blood just having oozed out of his head. Well, he had just been shot by the manager. And um, <laughs> so the manager was of course arrested the body's still there, and the and the LAPD cop, one of them, you know, make sure you step around the body as you go to the stairway. And we're like, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. so, so Debbie and I are like, uh, uh, I live we here. thought about moving here. I'm not so sure. Um, but the elevator didn't work, so you know, we're walking up the stairs, and you know, there's holes and there's burn marks on the carpet, and. And uh, we're like, fuck, I hope it better be cheap because <laughs> so that was that was our introduction was somebody who had just been shot in the head and uh, uh, killed. And we're like, well, it's Hollywood, you know, shit happens. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what can we say? <laughs> but, but immediately we want we did want to live there um, after getting. <laughs> but then as soon as we go into Rod's apartment, you know, you sat down on the floor because there was hardly anything else there. And immediately you were attacked by cockroaches. The cockroaches were never ending. They were just everywhere, constant, all over the place. And, uh, uh, you know, just an, another, and I suspect that, that many generations down the road are still in that building, which, you know, is still there. Um, when you, when but, you were going out with Jane Weedland, did you guys live together at the Canterbury? I can't remember because I remember her apartment, but I don't remember if you guys were yeah. cohabitating. Well, yeah, I was um, a bit of a dickhead about that. Uh, Debbie Dub and Jane were going to rent an apartment there, and um, I don't, I don't remember exactly what my dickheadedness uh, was, but somehow I sort of put myself in Debbie's place, and I've always felt really bad about that. And I've wrote to Debbie since and apologized, like I didn't mean to do that, but I had to live with Jane there. And of course, Jane accepted. She's like, okay, fine, we'll do that. But um, so that's how I ended up in that place on the second floor uh, with Jane. Uh, Nikki Beat and Alice uh, had a place there. Yes, Belinda, of course. Um, let's see. Um, oh, my God. They, there were some other people that. Um, Trixie lived there. Trixie lived there, right? Trixie for a little bit. I believe she did. What about uh, never, um, Shannon uh, from the Castration Shannon, Shannon and Alice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Shannon and Alice were there first before Nikki 
came around. They they had they had an apartment by the front door, and Alice would leave the window open all the time, and often sat in the window, or we'd we'd poke our heads in and see what was going on. At- I remember going to the Canterbury, and everyone had their windows open, or you could be walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and you could hear the Clash or the Damned coming out of. All the windows, and sometimes the songs were in sync, but other times you'd hear like pieces of the Clash, and then right. pieces jammed, or you know yeah. whatever. Like UK Forty Five would come out, and it was it was like listening to like a a hip hop master mix of all different punk songs. Yeah, it was right there in that building. Uh, Michael Michael Schwartz and um, oh my God, I must be really getting old. Um, Oh, wait, I am getting old. Um, Michael, Michael Schwartz, Human Hands. I'm in, no, was it Human Hands? No. No, uh, Michael, and um, I can't remember her name. She was um, uh, uh, blonde. Um, uh, it's not Shannon. Oh, it would have been for only a week. We all, our hair all changed so much. Yeah, exa- well, exactly. I know. I know. Everybody <laughs> was bleaching and, and it's like I never went there, but I was tempted. Anyway, there were there, people started moving in almost immediately, uh, and I love that idea because it kept us together. You know, LA is so spread out, and it's so easy to kind of lose contact and stuff. I, I thought, you know, for this thing to keep going, you know, we, we need we need places. We need one here and one there. You know, that are kind of uh, um, uh, information central for various groups of people, and and so I was I was happy about. Uh, the Canterbury that people were coming in. There were still some bikers there. There were still some really, really strange people. There was a woman who used to dress in this sort of green, um, these these layers of a green gauze. I, I don't know what it was. She had a huge turban and uh, she would walk extremely slowly in and out of the building. She must have been 90 years old or something. I mean, it was, God only knows what stories she could have told. Um, it was but there were, <laughs> Yeah, it was, I mean, she, she was so part of the family, you know. But, but there were a number of people still like that. Trudy and KK had a place there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it went, it went pretty strong for uh well for some months i don't know maybe a year i guess uh, yeah i think it was people... a year. that's kind of what i remember yeah and and it was you know it was going pretty much 24 hours a day in somebody's place and uh and then we got to rehearse in the basement for a little while um the guy uh the apartment manager said yeah, it's maybe a way to make a few bucks so he would let people rehearse down there but it was it was airless and uh extremely hot and you know, not, not much fun. Um, but you know, the cops were there a lot. I, I, uh, there was, uh, I don't really remember much trouble from the people that we knew, but, uh, sometimes there were, well, there was, but it wasn't like they murdered someone in the lobby. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's what I mean. Right. Not trouble like that. It was, it was other stuff, but, (laughs) You know, we weren't a little uh, noise and a little bit of lesbian activity in the elevator when at least they're not killing anybody. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah. Be careful when you open a door there because you might find a whole bunch of girls, you know, all on the bed. I don't know. That happened to me a couple. That of was times. totally true all the time. I, yes. I can attest to that. I was just like, oh, my God. OK, I shouldn't have opened the door or maybe I should have. And I should have just kind of like grabbed a chair and been entertained. But but I didn't <laughs> do that. Uh 
<laughs> yes, things like, you know, things like that happen. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that was, uh, that, was, that was pretty good. And we managed to push that through well into 1978, you know, before it started, everybody kind of started to go separate ways and stuff. Well, let's let's move um now that we're in um 1978 let's play a gun club song and then let's um we will talk about your experience with jeffrey pierce and the gun club and kid congo and all of that so yeah here's, here's a little music from the gun club In the west, it looks like rain. My eyes are black holes, and I'm burning away. You slaughtered your loving man, killed him in his sleep. And the blood cloud of your murder simply stains cheese. Your ghost on the highway, your gestures Okay, hi, hi again, Terry. Let's let's pick Hello. this up with with some Gun Club shit. Yeah, yes, Gun Club, those guys. Um, so you know, like by 1980, as you know, um, there was all the post punk, the new romantics, and there was just just you know shit changes. Uh, give it three or four years, it's going to evolve. It's going to change, and. Um, the bags broke up because we just it, with Patricia, Alice, Craig, me, Rob. It, they're, they're just the, the egos, the personalities. I mean, it's not going to last forever. And um, sadly, I wish we'd made an album. That's my only regret there. It just didn't happen. Um, but uh, but that fell apart. And so Rob and I, being bass player, drummer. We're like, you know what? We need to find another band. We need to find one quick. And let's find a band that's kind of popular. Well, of course, the popular bands, they're, are, they're all good. They don't need uh, bassists and drummers and um, uh, or maybe one, but we wanted to be a unit. And I had already known Jeff. I had met Jeff a long time before. I think the first time I met him uh, was at one of the um, parties that they would have on Saturday afternoons at Bomp Records in North oh, Hollywood. Bomp, of course. That was another, Bomp Records was in the Valley, run by Greg Shaw, and they would always have parties there. Sometimes there'd be an in-store by somebody. Like, I remember The Damned, everybody on Earth went to The Damned at Bomp yeah. Records, because The Damned yeah. was the first um, British punk band to come over, and like, even Angeline was there, I remember. She showed up she showed up and she had a band called Baby Blue at that time. Yeah. And she showed up in a Baby Blue corset and she walked through the door in the sunlight. And I remember even then looking at her going, wow, that lady's old, which might have meant at that time, maybe in her late 20s or something. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. God, it's like, it's so true. But she had, she, you know, she had some balls on her, I tell you. Um, whatever the fuck it was. I don't know how to define whatever she was, but um, 
that's what was kind of fun about Hollywood. You had this weird mix of, you know, us and all, all these strange sort of sideline interpretations of how to be famous or where to be famous or, you know, and, and, and uh, it's just, it was a great mix, which of course is long gone. Um, but, um, but I met Jeff, uh, I think it was at the Blondie party they had there oh, at Bomb. He was obsessed. He was the head of the of Blondie's fan club. Jeff yeah. Pierce was. He was obsessed yeah. with Debbie. He wrote. He wrote. He wrote a lot of early songs that weren't the Gun Club um, about Debbie, and that right. and then his obsession switched to Ivy from the <laughs> right. Debbie and Ivy, right. Uh, and uh, various others, but yeah, those two for uh, were were huge in his head. Um, but you know, and and I'd known about Jeff because he would write for uh, Slash Magazine, which was uh, LA's kind of big uh, newsprint, um, large format uh, fanzine, which actually had advertisements in it, and and uh, I, some of us thought there was a lot of money behind it or, or whatever it was, you know. But but. It was uh, Jeff would write under various pseudonyms. The ranking, ranking Jeffrey Lee. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. But he, he was really ranking for a while too. Him, him, and Kick Boy were, were Claude Betsy were way into reggae. Yeah, yeah, and and they and, and you know what what amazing personalities both of those guys, uh, uh, and, and and you know both of them had a great sense of humor. I mean, Jeff, uh, I could see that or I could read it. And, and um, so, you know, we just started talking and, oh my God, you know, when Jeff started talking, get him on, uh, just just say anything about um, a, an old record or, or some artist or something obscure. And, and Jeff, he was, he was, he was like, just like, I mean, at the time I thought of him as a walking encyclopedia, I guess. It, I, don't I was know just going to say that him and Fast Freddy were like walking encyclopedias of music of all genres. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fast Freddy, just, it just, they just knew everything. And I, so I was kind of in awe of them, you know, I'm like, wow, how can you know so much shit about so many things, you know, but that's because they loved it. And, and it was really important to them. And, and, uh, you know, Jeff would tell me about the, uh, uh, he would scour every, uh, uh, not just record store, but, um, I almost wanted to call it a vintage store, but at the time, of course, uh, you know, Goodwills and Salvation Armies and and yeah, thrift stores of all kinds. Record stores and Watts and get like white label, yeah. you know, yeah, like he, exactly. He would do that, and, and so he would find records. He would find things because you could find them then. You could find that stuff sitting around. Nobody gave a shit, um, and so he he just built up his knowledge and his collection. And uh, he just went on and on and on. And, and I thought, well, he sure likes to talk. But what a, you know, fascinating guy. He lived up in the valley and <clears throat> it really wasn't a part of the Hollywood scene or anything, but. He's, he started um, my band, um, the Cyclones. He, he forced uh, me to be in that band. And then that was how I got into bands because he kept telling me I should be a singer and I resisted for so long. He did the uh, same thing with Texacala Jones with Tex yeah. and the Hulkies. But yeah, wait, yeah. I need to sing you. Um, <laughs> I need to sing everybody the best fucking white label reggae record that Jeff brought over to my house. So these white label reggae records were um, they were uh, 
they were blank labels, but it was famous people you could recognize like Bob Marley or Bunny Whaler or like anyone singing on them. And it was them getting more wasted than they ever did on their normal recordings, but they were like X-rated, dirty adult reggae records. So this is, I don't remember exactly what the title of this song was, but it's probably in the part I'm gonna sing you. This was the chorus, um, North, South, West and East. I played the beauty and my boyfriend played the beast. Me a homosexual, me a homosexual. North, East, West and South. I take it in the ass and I take it in the mouth. Me a homosexual. <laughs> Um, like Jeff brought that record over and just left it at the square's end and I had it on the turntable 24-7. And then one of the um one of the guys from TSO was over there and I saw him at a club a few days later and he was like, fuck you, pleasant. I was singing that song at the bar at the music machine out loud. <laughs> uh, right. Well, you can't help it, you know? Yeah, you too, yeah, so. All the best records. <laughs> Well, Jeff told me that, you know, he, he, he did take a trip down there to uh, Kingston. And I, I sometimes wondered if it was if it was true or not. It was so much detail in it, though. I, I figured he probably did it. Is that was no, the thing I about remember that. I'm pretty sure he did it, but I'm also yeah. pretty sure he didn't take it in the ass or take it in the mouth oh, when no. he went down. <laughs> no, Jeff wouldn't go there. But uh, but but the thing about Jeff and, and, and going to Kingston like that, just because he loved it, he, the guy... Speaking of like big sets of balls, I mean, I, I, Jeff, they were just huge because he was so driven and just his love of music and, and culture of, of all kinds, you know, was just so much a part of him that he didn't know how to do anything but find ways to express it or, or find ways to explore it. And, and, uh, you know, so he was just kind of fearless, really, literally, uh, and um, anyway, so it's just um, to kind of spring forward a little bit. So Rob and I, we went to various clubs looking for bands and listening to bands and trying to you know, find somebody. And it's like, fuck, I don't know. What are we going to do? And uh, I got a flyer or saw one that uh, Gun Club was playing at the Hong Kong Cafe. And I'm like, oh, I, that's Jeff's brand new band. He just, I think they've only played one show and they were called Creeping Ritual. And now they're called Gun Club. And so we go there and we really didn't care. I mean, we just thought, well, we'll just go have a drink and, you know, whatever. We'll talk to Jeff. But as soon as they started to play, um, I, I was immediately taken by it. It was really rough. Uh, Brad Dunning, who is a, uh, uh, was a good friend at the time, and I've, I've talked to him lately. He's doing great. Um, yeah, I talk to Brad all the time. Another unsung hero of the punk scene. Yeah. Him and Kid Congo had a magazine, a fanzine called Contempo Trends. And uh -huh. it was like, it was weird. Like, there'd be like weird 50s architecture and stuff right. about mid century sofas in it. And then there'd be right. like, you know, reviews of like live shows of X or something. Right. Oh, yeah. Brad, Brad just knew all that stuff. You know, he was so, he was just so into that. And, and it's, it's such a, such a genius about it, you know, so early on. And uh, I, 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 as far as I know, it turned out great for him and I'm really happy, but he was the first gun club drummer and um, Don Waller, who was a writer uh, 
And also, uh, it was back to a man, Fast Freddy's magazine. It was yeah, Fast Freddy's. Yeah. He knew what he was talking about. He played bass. Well, I don't know why, uh, you know, but I mean, they they played the show. And I was, uh, <clears throat> I thought this is very rough, but this is really interesting. This is really cool. I don't, it's not punk. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it. So after the show, I went up to Jeff and I was kind of like, um, hey man, um, if if you ever need a drummer and a bass player, let me know because Rob and I, we'd love to kind of, you know, see what could happen. And he said, well, funny you should ask because Brad and Don just quit. <laughs> <laughs> Not, yeah, that's, that's right there. yeah, and so I said, oh, they did, huh? I said, well, then uh, me, I'm your new drummer and Rob is your new bass player. And I said, uh, uh, how about that? And he's like, sounds good. I've got a rehearsal next week because, you know, we ended up hating to go to rehearse. Not for any reason. We were just lazy and didn't want to rehearse. Um, but that's how we joined Gun Club. It was just that simple. Um, Brad and Don that was their last show and I happened to ask him the same night. So, you know, that was it. So we would just go to this little uh, horrible little room on Selma uh, Avenue, which is just south of Hollywood Boulevard uh, and rehearse and just kind of create all the shit that became Fire of Love. Um, Jeff would come in with sort of a skeleton, you know, a couple of chord changes and then we would just we would just create it out of that, you know? And what I liked about it, first of all, was Rob was so brilliant on bass. He was so good. He was just so naturally talented and knew that that kind of uh, music so well anyway, um, that uh, we were we were totally free to just, just create whatever. Jeff was very open to, I don't know what this is. Let's, let's create it. Let's figure it out. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it was it was really fun. We only played a show or two and then Kid immediately, um, almost immediately joined the cramps. And yeah. uh, and we were we were like at once really jealous. <laughs> yeah, because fuck. like you can't you can't blame someone for leaving your band to join the cramps. You know, oh, God, I mean? no. oh, it was, no. they were everyone's favorite band. Yeah. We told him, like, Kid, we hate you or Brian at the time. It's yeah, like, we Brian. hate you, but, but, and we're really jealous, but you know, we love you too. And uh, we just want you to go and have like the greatest time of your life. And, uh, but, and he understood. And I mean, it was just all really fun for all of us to, uh, to think that uh, he was going to be in the cramps. We, we really liked that. We just thought that's perfect. You know, he'll be great. And uh, <clears throat> so then we had to find somebody in, in, um, the strange thing about Ward Dotson was that he was living in Orange County and he had just two days before had tried out for the cramps. Uh, when they also, he, was, he, he moved into my house, disgrace and Oh, he did. I didn't even know that. Yeah, he took over <laughs> Belinda's room when she went on tour with the go oh. oh, okay. Well, how about that? <laughs> well, it was so strange because he was so brokenhearted, you know, that, that the, the cramps didn't want him. And of course I took one look at him and like Ward, you know, you look like a, a sort of a preppy dude from Orange County. Okay. Of yeah. course they're not going to, you're not going to be in that band. Forget it. It's not going to happen. doesn't matter how good you are. Um, you, you've got to look the part. Okay. It's the cramps. I mean, sorry, you just have to. And, uh, uh, but he was perfect for us. 
because he really understood roots and blues music. And he was very good at that uh, just instantly, you know. So he fit right in and he and Jeff could uh, communicate pretty well. And uh, so it, it, it just really gelled and came together. And it, it didn't it wasn't long after that, you know, uh, before we went into the studio with Fire of Love. So I'm glad we went in kind of early, but you know, we were feeling, here's the thing. We were feeling pretty neglected and lonely and, and feeling sorry for ourselves and full of self-pity <laughs> because, uh, but you know, it's like, well, well, we don't, we hardly even know what we are. How's anyone, anyone else going to know that? And we were looking for a bone of some sort, you know, and you pleasant did that for us. When you gave us that short little review in LA Weekly, that was our first taste of like, oh my God, maybe we could be something. Really? Wow. You you gave that to us and made us feel like so early on when we needed it so badly. That was, we were like reading it going, oh my God, look, somebody actually wrote about us. It's pleasant. It's great. She knows what she's talking about, right? Of course she does. It yeah. must be real. It must be true. <laughs> so <laughs> you you really helped uh, uh, add a, a, a kind of really strong unifying glue to us when we we're all sort of had our eye on like other bands and like, I don't know if this is going to work. Let's just make an album and forget about it. Um, so I have to thank you for that all these years later, because that was really that was really good for us. And uh uh, you know, we were just like, okay, well, we can't give up. We just got to keep trying. And and uh, our first show at Club 88, we were banned uh, immediately from Club 88. I, I, I got banned from there, but it was for having sex in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been more fun than... That was, that was worth it. Um, that was with somebody else who later joined the gun club too. No names here. <laughs> Everybody was in the gun club. I know, um, I know, except for me, but I guess I was kind of in them if I wrote about you. Hey, um, we let's we have to move along a little bit because I got okay. kind of a calm constraint. So let's so as we're talking about writing, um, and not not getting banned from places, even though like me and you could both get banned from anywhere still if we wanted to. If we wanted to, uh, we certainly could. Yes, maybe we should try to do that on a senior citizen level pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you guys um, all these years later. Fuck you all. Let me take out my teeth and tell you for real. No. <laughs> right. Um, I can't get banned. Yes, I can. <laughs> so your book, Punk Like Me, is, is it's been out for a couple of years, but you've got some new stuff going on with it. First of all, let me, before you talk, I got to tell everyone, you should read this book. Terry is an incredible writer, like on the level of his drumming. And he's got, he has like one of the best memories in punk rock, I got to say, except for mine. And I'm not self-aggrandizing because a lot of people that we talk to don't remember anything or they remember us. Yeah, so true. Oh, God. So as, yeah. but we got we to write it all down before we get Alzheimer's. <laughs> but what's, going, know, on, what's right. going on with your book right now? Tell us. Well, so yeah, it is, uh, it's a couple of years and, um, uh, since it first came out. And what I'm doing now is I'm talking to a couple of uh, British publish- publishers for a print version uh, that'll go. That's got uh, that'll have worldwide distribution. It was always just kind of something I 
uh, that was done, uh, uh, you know, very locally in a sense. Um, but that uh, that should uh, change all that. COVID sort of put a delay on everything, um, but it's still active, ongoing, and um, uh, we're about ready to uh, pull the trigger on that, so to speak. Uh, I'm also doing an audio version of it, and uh, that is going to be like an iTunes book, uh, or, or rather an iBook at first, and then it'll be available across every platform. Um, I have, there's a, a Russian translated version that's going to come out next year. And uh, I just think that's really cool, you know, and I, uh, all I want is a copy of that just to sort of like, ah, look, it's in You're Russian. You're writing in Kyrillic script. Yeah, it's. it's You're on a rocket to Russia, Terry. <laughs> I know. I'm just thinking of the book tour in Russia. Okay, that's going to be interesting. Uh, but, um, but. You know, there's a, a couple of people I've talked to in uh, in the Ukraine, and and they're just such great uh, fans of rock and roll in general, and and uh, you know they they wanted to make it happen, and I I was like, well, uh, look, I don't know translating it. I want you guys to just take it and make it make it readable or for Russian. I said you're gonna have a tough time with this. There's a lot of references to all kinds of things that I have in my book. And uh, I said, just do whatever you want. I don't care. Just just make it readable for Russians <laughs> or whatever. But I, I just I just like that, you know. I just like the fact that it's uh, it's going to be in Russian, French, no, Russian, yes. Um, although I would love a French version too. But otherwise, that stuff will kick in uh, bigger next year and uh, kind of you know get rolling and to the ground. Uh, in a way, none of us have been able to in the past six or seven months. It's just been a little bit tough. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's where that's at. I re-edited the entire book. Wow. So yeah, it was, I think it was, I'm glad I did it. Um, I. Uh, it's funny. I mean, obviously you would know this because you've been prolific uh, writing so many amazing things that uh, sometimes you read them again and, and you, you know, you really like it. And sometimes you're like, Oh geez, I wish I could have uh, changed that. Yeah. That's like, you never stop. Um, never um, stop. It's oh. yeah. You don't. And it's at some point you have to, but, um, anyway, I, I just wanted to, uh, kind of, uh, I didn't change anything essentially, but, um, uh, but just kind of go over it with with a a fine paintbrush and uh, uh, tweak it here and there. Yeah, but, that's um, good. You know, but that's 2021. All that stuff will get more active and and come out again, and it'll be more easily available. Um, uh, I think, and and uh, kind of looking forward to the audio book uh, too. I think that uh, that'll be really fun. Uh, time with that. Harry. Hmm? <laughs> story time with Terry. <laughs> story time with Terry. Yeah, I always tell people just keep the book in the bathroom. That's probably the best place for it. And uh, just pick it up and read it wherever. It doesn't matter. Tell me quickly about um, tell me quickly about the clothing stuff you're doing. Like let everyone know about that. Is that is that in process now or is it just getting set up? Ah, uh, yes, Terry Ware. Um, people used to make fun of me because I would go clothes shopping and 
and um, you know, I would kind of always sort of buy the same vintagey looking stuff, and whether it was new or actual. Uh, and so they were, you know, they were just like, oh, where's the Terry? Where we need? And so I, I'd been kicking this idea around for a long time because I love clothes, I love fashion, and I'd never done anything about it. And just finally thought, you know, I need to do something about it because I really, really love that stuff. I really love doing it. And uh, coming up with a name, I just thought of all these different names, and I thought, well, it's so obvious, it's Terryware. Fuck, why, why am I, why am I beating this horse here? I, it's, it's, that's what it is. So, so yes, it's, it's live. Uh, the website is terrywareclothing.com, and I'm starting well, out with some, um, in the, in the um, episode description, so you guys can check that out and check out all of Terry's social media and stuff too. Yeah, it's, it's. It's face masks right now. These are based on uh, Judith Bell's illustrations. She's the one who drew all the pictures on the back of the cover of Fire of Love, the first Gun Club album. And they're, they're kind of iconic and uh, they, they've been copied, you know, for a long time for T-shirts and various things. These are official. I'm working with her. And uh, we're also going to do one of those as soon as they come out or some of them. Yeah, the uh, uh, I mean, we've got. The first set of face masks now with uh, uh, seven Gun Club songs. And then uh, I'm about to order a second batch with the other songs and then some other things, a couple of cramps, uh, face masks. And uh, they look really good. They're really... Fall the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're you know, um, when I got the masks, they're, they're, they're actually quite nice. They're really comfortable. They're all cotton. They got filter pockets there. So all the safety stuff that we can that we could think of is there. And, and, uh, but then we're also going to have, uh, some, uh, some shirts, uh, before Christmas. And then again, next year, I'm really going to amp that up because we have some different collections. We want to do a whole Western wear collection of some really cool vintage designs. And, um, uh, we have a collection called Laguna ranch. And then there's uh, one for women called Laguna bitch. Um, <laughs> We've got, uh, it's just a, a whole lot of things. I've got a couple of young people working with me who are very, very good at this stuff. They really know how to create these things and they've got so much energy. Um, like so many other young people I've met that are fans of all the things that, that you and I have done. Uh, they, they just love it. They know more about it than I do. And uh, so I love their energy. I love the fact that they, um, uh, you know, their enthusiasm inspires me and and gives me a lot of energy and maybe that's why I'm still around I don't know but I just I just let them go and um, you know their fire really really helps me so um, uh, I'm very excited about that it's going to be fun but the website's up now and you can buy the masks and they're selling pretty well actually right now so I need to send you something. I want to wear one of your masks. What's behind the mask, as the cramps would say? And the that's behind the mask. Yes, yes. The cramps. I, I, I know. I've tried to. Uh, uh, I'd love to talk to Ivy. Uh, I know. Everybody. Yeah, I talked to her recently, but a couple of years ago. But you know, she's still doing really well. But um, I, I don't know. Who knows? Things may happen. I can't say anything. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything. Just just keep the lid on it. Um, yeah, because I would love to still play music. And and uh, I was in the process, kind of sort of starting a band. And 
And uh, I I want to pick that up too. I it, I love playing drums. It's just still fun. And you had uh, a band called Sex Beat for a little while. And let's let's um we'll talk about this for two seconds, and then we got to blow this pop yeah. stone. So sure. Sex Beat is like like just you playing like guns, gun club, and bags stuff. And then did you write original songs? I I am not remembering. No, all that was was like um. There was a uh, book reading I did, and I and I thought it would be really fun to have three or four bands uh, play for it early on. Um, and uh, again, these young people that I've met here, their 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 enthusiasm, you know, in particular, in my case anyway, for Gun Club, um, uh, we just were talking one night, and it was like, well, why don't we just play some Gun Club songs and a couple of Cramp songs and. Uh, because I played with the cramps for a little while too. And, you know, and we're like, yeah. a. I love them. They're so, so amazing. Oh, they're, they're unbelievable. It's so knowledgeable. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's just amazing. And, and such good people, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, how can you guys, guys be such good people? And I think about myself when I was young and I was not good at all. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they those Terminal A guys, they remind me of how we were when we were their age or yes. younger. No, really. Yeah. And I mean, sounds all grandma and grandpa here, but like we would have been friends with them in the 70s. But luckily, oh my God, they, yes. we weren't born then, so now we're friends with them now. <laughs> yes, I know. And I, I feel very fortunate that they allow me to be their friend and to hang out with them and to... Uh, uh, you know, that they, that they, you can, you can see their Michelle Myers. <laughs> yeah, right. No, right. Oh my God. <clears throat> it's true. Well, you know, there's life, right? It's kind of a cycle. I was that now I'm this, they are this soon. They will be where I'm at now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it, it's all good. And, and we all accept each other. And I think nowadays really it's better in a lot of ways because everybody kind of accepts everybody for, uh, for things, but but they just said, let's just, yeah, let's play. Let's do a few things. And then there was call to keep doing it. Other people would ask us if we, so there's, it was really not uh, all that serious. It was just kind of a way to have fun. And uh, I love their enthusiasm. Uh, a guy named Sharif Dimani was, was uh, uh, playing bass. Uh, and he was really, really good musician. He's in a lot of local LA bands. Um, so it was, that was just for fun. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of, a lot of shows. I uh, don't know if that'll ever pick up again, but uh, that's really fun to play with. So, um, well, other I guess than that, you know, that, that good for you. Was it good for yeah, you, Terry? A, uh, it's it's uh, it's good for me. It's good. If it's good for you, it's good for me. It's it, it's good. It was good for me. I hope it's good for the audience. How can it not be with? with Terry Graham, one of the really shining luminaries of LA punk rock. Um, it's so fabulous to have you, Terry. Make sure you guys um, go over to his Terryware website and um, read his book, buy his book, Punk Like Me. Soon you'll be able to listen to it as an audiobook, or if you so desire, read it in Russian. Um, <laughs> it was really, a pleasure talking to you, Terry. Oh, pleasant. I, I appreciate this so much. You are so the best, so prolific and so amazing yourself. I mean, it's just, uh, and, and everybody knows that. So I, I really appreciate it.
I am blushing. All right, I'm going to sign off with you. And for all you guys listening, that was, in case you didn't realize, that was the amazing Terry Graham, Mr. TG. Yo, designer, writer, <laughs> punk forever. <laughs> Dude. Dude. All right. Uncle T. Goodbye, Uncle T. (laughs) Goodbye, Pleasant. Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 